Hey listeners, one of our goals of this podcast is to build a vibrant community around the business of wine. We've been delivering compelling and educational content for two years. We have really appreciated the outreach and engagement from you, our dear listeners, and a number of you have asked how you can help support the show. We love making the show and keeping the quality high, so we decided to launch a Patreon account where you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. We've set the contribution to $5 a month to encourage as many people as possible to participate. Go to patreon.com slash xchateau to sign up. We'll put a link in our show notes and on xchateau.com, and we'll be announcing new patrons with each episode. I'd like to take a moment to recognize two new patrons who joined the X Chateau community and give a shout out and thank you for joining and helping support the show. Julia B and Leslie S, greatly appreciate your support and look forward to hearing from you and your thoughts on the show. Cheers. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your host Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we're going to be talking about breaking into the premium segment of sparkling wine with an American sparkling wine producer, Michael Cruz, who is the owner and winemaker of Ultramarine and Cruz Wine Company. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I was wondering if you could give Peter and I a brief overview of your background and your history in wine. So as we were kind of talking before the show, a barrier kid, depends how you count it, but I think we're going back four or five generations in San Francisco. And not from a winemaking family or anything like that, but we consumed a lot of alcohol. We're not teetotalers by any stretch of the imagination. And I ended up going to Berkeley thinking that I was going to be a scientist. That was kind of what I was into. To make a very long story short, had a couple of run-ins that made me dislike some aspects of my chosen field and uh, try wine. I didn't have any reason for that, honestly, except I kind of wanted to do something with my hands. So started working for other people. First was kind of a natural transition from the lab to the lab. So I went into the lab at Sutter Home, worked there for a year and a half, and then started setting up a lab for Maryvale, and then ended up getting more into the actual production side of things. And after about seven-ish years, decided to start doing my own thing. I guess Ultramarine started in 2008, which was only, I guess, three years after I started in the industry. But that was with a few partners. And the idea was really that we wanted to try to make sparkling wine in California. I think a lot of times when people give their sort of garage tales, their startup stories, there's like actual, there's more detail than that is actually the case, right? And I think for us, when we started... I don't think we had any idea. Well, I know for a fact, we had no idea what we were doing. We had no idea what the focus was. There was no thought of a business plan or goals. And even though I say we start in 2008, our first real vintage wasn't until 2010. We made wine in eight and nine, but our real vintage was in 2010. I think by that point, those two years was enough time to figure out not what we were doing, but kind of what we wanted to do. And then I think that got further refined kind of as we went down the line. And then I think this is being more specific and kind of jumping into some of your questions kind of going into it. But I think the idea as it sort of naturally matured was that we were not going to copy champagne, but rather take some of the influence of techniques and sort of the spirit of some of the people that were in champagne and the grower movement and sort of apply that to California. And that's really the start of Ultramarine as a real thing. So then you also have Cruz Wine Company, which I think also has a focus on sparkling wines. Can you tell us What's the difference between the two brands and 
what they make and what's bigger, how much it's made? Sure. The idea of Cruise was not do sparkling. That was the point. And Cruise started in 2013. And... The real startup of Cruise was that it was going to be a custom crush facility. It wasn't actually going to make wine at all. And that was actually had a real business plan and a real sort of focus and idea. But it kind of started snowballing. I became interested in Valdegay. I think that's probably the start of it. And at that point, I mean, certainly Brock and Hobo had kind of already messed around with Valdegay, at least a little bit. I knew of a couple of vineyards that were really pristine and that I wanted to sort of experiment that side. But as sort of crews developed, I realized that my real passion wasn't sparkling. And the way that I would sort of separate or distinguish the two of them is that ultramarine is sort of a, I don't know, people don't like me saying this, but like ultramarine is sort of like a monastic study of a couple of vineyards. We do the press cuts this way. We put it in barrel this way. And it's a very, cookie cutter is not the right way to put it, but a very traditional, highly focused production style. So we're blocking mallow, we're fermenting in barrel, we're making very strong press cuts. We have a relatively long tirage. Cruise is more of, sorry, I'm stumbling a little bit, but with Ultramarine, you're sort of like asking, okay, if I apply these very refined techniques to a specific set of vineyards, what do I get, right? And sort of as I learned more, I sort of realized that actually that works great for high acid coastal vineyards, but it doesn't have broad application in California. And I think that we've already, I was telling myself before we started that I should keep the nerdiness down a little bit, but I feel like we've already thrown out the window. So what the hell? One of the core elements to me, not Cruz or Ultramarine, but Michael Cruz, is that I really believe that sparkling wine is a way to sort of examine terroir just as much as still wine could be. And I realized that we cannot take the techniques of Ultramarine and apply it broadly to California as a whole. And I think that some of what I learned in doing that was that I can be more oxidative or I can do larger vat stuff or things like that and make a wine that's really interesting. And that's sort of how Cruz comes in or Petnat or whatever it ends up being. And that's sort of where Cruz comes in. So Cruz ends up being the more experimental side for sure, the more oxidative style for sure. And I think more focus on California as a whole rather than specific coastal vineyards, which is sort of ultramarine's focus. And then production volume. So basically ultramarine, it's sort of hard to say what the production is because of course from one year we will harvest maybe a thousand case equivalents, but in terms of what actually ends up making the cut somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 to maybe 750 cases, depending on the vintage. And then for cruise, we have a relatively large red blend called Monkey Jacket, Cruise Tradition, things like that. So we end up being about maybe 7,000 cases year to year. Some vintages a little bit more, some vintages a little bit less. I think in 18, we probably did 8,500 cases, but since then we've kind of come down a little bit because of drought and other things. So Ultramarine is a single vineyard focus, sounds like coastal vineyards, Single vintage, single grape variety, I think, as well, right? In the traditional method. Well, Pinot and Chard, but yeah. Okay. But each wine is a single variety or is it? The Rosé is a blend of Chardonnay and Pinot. But yes, outside of that, like we do try to sort of look at the extreme case of just a single variety, single vintage, single vineyard. And Cruz is still wine and sparkling, but in different methods like Petnat and other things as well. And an exploration of California versus just coastal Sonoma. I don't know. I hope this doesn't seem odd, but I think we have probably more to say in Ultramarine is a highly refined style of winemaking. I think that we're known for it, whereas tradition or cruise, I guess, 
is more of an exploration in terms of what the overall space could be here. And just to clarify a little bit, I found it really interesting when you said that sparkling wine is a way to really showcase terroir, because I think a lot of people would think of sparkling wine as very process driven. Do you think that's the amplification of flavors and acidity and intensity that you get from the bubbling? I think it depends on what you mean by site and what you mean by terroir and what you're trying to examine, obviously. But what I mean when I say that is that I think that we can have conversations about vineyards with sparkling wine in the same way that we can have conversations about vineyards in still wine, that those conversations and what it means to be Heinz or what it means to be Hirsch or what it means to be Matthew Rourke's vineyard, those conversations can happen in still and sparkling. And I think that, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this, but sort of, I don't have any, I was going to say something that was more inflammatory than I mean to say, or, or that I feel, but I think one of the issues with sparkling wine over the last at least 40 years in California, but I would say maybe globally over the last 60 to 70 years has been this idea of sparkling wine should be this one very specific style of wine, which is to say the large house champagne model. And that's totally fine. Like there's nothing wrong with that by any stretch, but I think that wines can be more expressive than that. And that could be an okay thing. Like maybe it's not going to make it to your mother's Sunday brunch and that's fine. But I think for the connoisseurs or the real lovers of wine that we have more to offer. And I think the idea of us just making sort of acid water has been kind of a, certainly has been bad for vineyards and probably for everybody, to be honest. So I'm curious. So obviously you started altering for Cruise Wine Company and I'm curious on who inspired some, like, cause you mentioned that you want to try to do what some of the grower champagnes are doing in California. Did you have some inspiration from some growers that you thought were doing it right that you looked towards as an idea? Well, again, yes. I would just hesitate to say that like that happened sort of later. There were certainly people that were inspirational to me, but I don't think that I really knew enough at the time that we started it to say one way or the other. Now that I've spent more time in Champagne and tasted and traveled more. I mean, the big ones for me were my first time going to Champagne was what year? Probably 2009 maybe 11. I'm not exactly sure. There's a story for why I don't know. But anyway, Marina Ledrew is number one for me. I think what she was able to do in a tiny little cellar in Ambonet just spoke to farming and spoke to how she sort of worked with grapes and wine. Fred Savard is high up there on the list for me. Jerome Provost, Alexander Chartogne. Those are all guys that were super inspirational. And in the case of Fred, I would say like literally helpful. Actually, Marino LeDrew, same, literally helpful in, in sort of getting me up and running and saying, yeah, I should do this or do that. I think as I learn more, then I would say Alex was super helpful to me. There's a lot of inspiration to be had in Champagne because, you know, at the end of the day, those guys are all going to lunch together. They're all talking about this stuff all the time. If one of their pieces of equipment breaks, they have other pieces of equipment to get. You know, we our corker broke, our old corker broke, and I have to fix all the equipment for our stuff. There's not like techs that work on small French sparkling equipment, or at least not necessarily more than I know about it. They're thinking about this stuff all the time. I am too, but I don't necessarily have the colleagues around me to discuss. On that point, sparkling wine, particularly good traditional method, spends a long time on lees, which is notoriously capital intensive. 
curious on that decision to like jump into this market because you even see with grower producers in Champagne who often don't have the space to age it because they have the next vintage coming in and they have to kind of turn over things and they don't age it as long as you want. And you've even held back early on and set up late releases. So I'm curious on that thought process about getting into the space and how are you quantifying like, oh crap, how long do I need to keep this stuff on the leaves? And has that changed as you've gained some success? Yeah. I mean, okay. So I think there's two things to say here. First is, is that like, there is no thought ever that I was going to make money doing this. I mean, I want to be really clear. Like I sort of figured like if I can not go bankrupt and I can make kind of what I made working for someone else, sort of, kind of, then I'd be good. And I've kind of done that. And that's sort of okay. The way to think about for the sort of listeners, I mean, the way that I would think about it is like, okay, so let's take cruise tradition. Cause that's a quicker turnaround. That's like maybe 40 months from sort of harvest to when I get money in my bank account, I guess, you know, like, well, 40 months, I mean, that's three plus vintages, right. That I have to pay for before I sell one. You might think that's just fruit, but that's not just fruit. That's also glass. Cause you're filling glass the first time. Right. And sparkling glass is insanely expensive. It's two plus plus dollars a bottle. I mean, it's almost $3 now with the sort of changes going on. The point is, is that for my $45 retail, even if my costs are sub 10, which they're not, I basically have to float 30 plus dollars for that 145. And I think that like, you can do the math, like that doesn't make any sense. So especially when you try to grow, you're severely limited in growth. And that's kind of always been the thing with Ultramarine. What I will say is that like a lot of things with Ultramarine, we guessed right from the beginning. So we tasted all the way through. We always tasted the wines, of course. But we kind of knew early on that about 40 months, plus or minus a little bit, was going to be the right amount of tirage. And we were right. And it was an accident. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like after the fact, yeah, we've done seven-year experiments. We've done eight-year experiments. I've done 24-month experiments. I've done 18-month experiments. For a wine of the pedigree of Ultramarine, I think you need 36 to 48. I think after that, you know, it becomes a personal preference. I personally don't like our late disgorge stuff. I know that's sort of counter to a lot of people. A lot of people love the late disgorge stuff that we've done. But for me, I think it starts losing some of that innate character of the vineyard. On the other side, the first vintage of tradition we did, we did it on 24 months, like boom, like from the moment it was harvested, 18 months in bottle, turned it around. And I think it was to the detriment of what we were trying to do to that wine. When you short your entourage under a year, you can taste it. To me, it has this fruity taste that is kind of, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of like, you know, when you're at like IHOP or something and you get the fake maple syrup, it's not real maple syrup. It's just sugar water that they put brown coloring in. That has a fruitiness to it. And to me, the really, really short tirage sparkling wines have that fruitiness. And back to the original point we're doing, we're talking about site here. We're talking about terroir here. That fruitiness is not part of that equation, right? So as much as I would love to do a 12-month turnaround or 18-month turnaround, to me, the results never matched to be cocky, maybe the aspirations of my wine. I think that like for me, it was, it sucks. <laughs> I'm not stoked about it, but physics is physics. And if it takes 36 months from harvest to release something, that's what we're going to do. So the current release of tradition is 18 for what it's worth. Have you found that the dosage is indirectly related to the time on tirage? So that's a great question. And I think it's a really important one. I have gone back and forth on that. And I think that when we get, again, we're getting into like the super nerd level, but somebody interviewed me about dosage the other day. And I sort of thought about it like, 
I don't forget exactly how she phrased it, but she sort of asked me like, how often do you think about dosage? And I was like, never. It's like nothing I think about. And it's like 3% of the production cycle. Is it an interesting part of the production cycle? Absolutely. 100%. But compared to anything else, it's like this much, you know? And I think it's funny to sort of talk about it. And I understand what we talk about. We talk about it because it's a number. But the nuance of it is sort of lost when you talk about it that way. And so to answer your question, let's take the example of the late disgorge ultramarine. Okay. So normally we dose our Blanc de Blanc for ultramarine at around two grams, sometimes less, but two grams is kind of the sweet spot. Well, if we put it on Tourage for a longer period of time, the sort of autolytic character of the wine can be tuned by going a little bit stronger on the dosage. If we go up to four grams or five grams, you wouldn't notice a sweetness difference, but you would notice the cakey patisserie notes would be much stronger. To me personally, that's not something I want to encourage. So I don't amp that up. But with the longer tirage, adding a little bit more of that, you can increase that. With the shorter tirage, there's not enough of the base material for that to happen. So it doesn't matter anyway. Then you're just sort of affecting the sweetness. So. I was just curious on cruise tradition, if there was more dosage than typically the 40 months of ultramarine. No, actually, cruise tradition has always been no dosage. For the rosé, funny about that, for the rosé, we've added dosage. And we did so because basically that wine was so savory. I started thinking that people wouldn't actually recognize it as rosé. I mean, other than the color. But, you know, it starts tasting like kind of leather and acid or I don't know exactly, leather and mushrooms. I wanted to sort of increase the dosage a little bit just to kind of make it rosé-like. But anyway, so that's sort of my thinking there. I don't mean to dismiss dosage. It's just when we spend so much time on vineyards and sort of the production cycle, it ends up being such a small part of the finished wine. Dosage and sulfur. Those are my two areas we talk way too much about. I think sulfur, that's really interesting, right? Because we don't talk about sulfur that much in sparkling wine, but it's a really important part of sparkling wine production. I agree with you. We talk too much about it, 100%. But it's funny that like we talk about sulfur almost never in sparkling wine, but I actually think it does... Anyway, since I make both, I would say I think you can adjust things a lot more with sulfur and sparkling wine than you can with still. So I am curious. So not only there's the time on tirage, that's a huge financial investment. There's also the machinery, as you had mentioned earlier in your comment. And having been to Napa and Sonoma recently, a lot of people are serving a sparkling wine. And I, I always ask, did you make it in-house? And they're like, oh, no, it's our vineyard. And we just send the wine out to Rack and Riddle. It's kind of like the default answer. And honestly, a lot of them taste the same to me, are very similar. And I'm curious on how much of that terroir concept is also you having it in your facility and you buying your own equipment. Like there's a huge capital intensive to actually storing it on your site and having your own equipment for it. Yeah. So again, like what I just said, I'm not smart about any of this stuff, right? So, but I sort of knew from the beginning that when you look at the growers in Champagne, some of the stuff they use other people for. So for example, maybe you use a co-op press or something like that, or maybe you tirage it with a truck or something like that. But your elevage, you're doing yourself. And most people are doing their disgorging themselves. I think that changes depending on the person. But And for the guys I really appreciated, like aforementioned Madame Madrew or Jerome, like those guys are doing it all in-house, right? And for me, I knew that that was going to be the case from the beginning. And that's what we had to do. And to be honest, we almost never used, even with our still wine, I think we used a bottling truck twice. I always like doing that in-house. And I think that like, not to give anybody shit who doesn't have their own bottling line, but I think that like for us, it was a really important part to being able to control all aspects of it. And I think you're right in saying that like, again, the nuance of this is sort of too dorky to bear, but basically 
we wanted to use a bottle for ultramarine that Rack and Riddle would never touch. And I want to have the flexibility to be do whatever I want. I want to have the flexibility to not disgorge on a big line. I mean, I think one of the things when you're doing stuff by hand, the disgorging itself becomes a little bit more oxidative, right? It's not a fast line. You're not using ice. From the moment you pop that cap to the moment it's corked, it might be 15, 20 seconds as opposed to on a high-speed line, you're talking at 15th of a second, maybe. Does that matter? No, but stylistically, it starts affecting the wines and changing them. And I think that, you know, we just got, talking about this with my assistant winemaker today, like we just got a new corker that we received after a year and a half or something like that. And we finally now have a system that won't keep up with our gyro pallets. So we bought the gyro pallets in 17. Then we got a bottle washer. Then we got a new disgorger. Then we got a new corker. And finally, now we have to restart all again. And then now we have to upgrade our, our gyro pallets and then upgrade our bottle washer, you know, and then down the line. It's sort of a funny aspect of what we do. But I think that like it does take or it's taken us. I shouldn't say it does take. I say for us, it's taken almost 10 years of sourcing equipment, sourcing use equipment learning what we needed and kind of developing it in-house. So you've been organically growing and acquiring the right technology one step at a time. So you were hand riddling it before the gyro pallet. Are you still hand riddling on ultramarine or is that something that you're doing in gyro pallet as well? We hand riddle the magnums only at this point. We still use the gyros. I mean, the gyros are really interesting because I think like the only thing that makes a big difference with gyros is that I actually prefer hand riddling pet nats. Like it becomes too hard to do it because I would need 10,000 square feet just for the hand riddling. But because when you use gyros, you have to use riddling aid, which is like a small amount of bentonite. It's a much lower amount of bentonite than you would use for fining, somewhere between 40 and 80 parts per million. So really small adds, but it's just to prevent the yeast from sticking to the glass because the machine can't go slow enough to let it happen organically. But we've found that like actually the big difference for us has been always the pet nats, but I've been very happy with the riddling otherwise. And the other thing too, is like as much as we want to talk about sort of hand riddling, I mean, hand riddling, it's a lot of work and it's also a lot of like, I don't want everybody to have wrist problems that works for me. You know what I mean? Like I like my team, (laughs) you know, it's hard enough getting them to run a disgorging line and not get carpal tunnel. The hand riddling is a lot. So we still hand riddle a lot of stuff, but it's, hundreds of bottles instead of thousands, which we were doing up until 2017. So there's the vineyard aspect of of a lot of your wines. Are there other things that you think make your wines different than champagne or other domestic sparkling wines? I mean, I think the ones that are like the obvious ones is pressing, is that we've done pretty extensive sort of work there. I'm definitely sort of a freak when it comes to that. I think that like compared to champagne, I don't know. Again, this is sort of like, I don't want to say anything that's going to be too inflammatory, but in like champagne, you have enough acid kind of no matter what. So you sort of use the pressing that's prescribed by the CIBC, by the champagne committee. I mean, you can adjust it a little bit, but you sort of, that's what you do. For us, I've found that's been an improvement that we can make. Not that our cycles are different, but just the speed at which we do it and sort of the cuts that we make. That's different from us in Champagne and certainly different from other California producers. I would say having a long-term relationship with most of our growers has been a pretty big deal because 
it's not necessarily obvious to people how to farm for sparkling wine. And I think there is a, definitely a difference there. And it also, unfortunately, it's not like, oh, just do this and that will work here and there. It's more like, let's try this here and see how it goes. Like I have one vineyard. I can't talk about the vineyard yet because we haven't made the wine, but I have one vineyard where one block, one thing works great, but another block that's could not be 500 yards away. I mean, literally you could throw a stone and hit it. Maybe somebody who can actually throw could do it. And that same sort of prescription in terms of crop load and canopy doesn't work at all. It's been a lot of work there and getting focused on sparkling. And I think the big thing for me, and this is not shade on anybody else, but I think the fact that this is my actual job, it's true. I make still wine and I do do that, but I'm more like a sparkling producer who also makes still wine rather than a still wine producer who also makes sparkling. And I think that like, that's been a big differentiating factor for me. And honestly, I do custom crush. So I make a lot of sparkling wine for other people too, which is sort of giving me more insight faster in what I think is a good thing or a bad thing. And how does that showcase itself in the wine? Do you think that accentuates what a domestic sparkling wine is for you? That's a really good question. Okay, so here's what I would say. It's always blowhardy to be like, oh, I do this and ergo you get that right in wine because it's not an illustrative art. I can't choose red paint and more red, right? But here's what I would say. I would say that one time in Champagne, I was talking to a guy and I don't want to say his name because I think it will sound too name drobby, but he was talking about how in Chardonnay, Chardonnay doesn't have a lot of fruit and it has a lot of minerality. If you want to show terroir, you protect the fruit by being very reductive. You don't need to worry about being oxidative because the minerality shows. On Pinot Noir, it's the other way around. You have too much fruit and not enough minerality. So you want to be a little more oxidative here to lower the fruit. And then that way the minerality will come up and that will show terroir. In his mind, the terroir is the minerality part that he wants to show. And the reason why I bring that up is I think about that in California wine all the time. It doesn't matter if it's Chardonnay or Pinot. We always have too much fruit, not too much fruit. We always have a lot of fruit, right? So we sort of need to manage that to sort of show sight. So I would say you won't find my sparkling wines. Pet nuts maybe the being the exception, but you won't find them particularly fruity or maybe floral, but you don't find them particularly aromatically fresh. And I think that's by design in a lot of ways. I think sometimes you'll hear other producers, again, this is no shade, but I think they talk a lot about how California is fruity. And I say that that's true, but I think our job as winemakers is to sort of showcase vineyards. And I think that that doesn't necessarily mean that everything needs to be fruity. I think it's kind of a, a misnomer to say that California or that we should label California sparkling wine as fruity. So I'm curious on how you think about pricing for domestic sparkling wine and keeping it really focused on domestic at the moment. Obviously, we can talk about global in a second, but I think that, you know, you have on the low end, you have like $20, $25 price points, and then you have some people doing a reserve blend or something like that, that is going to be a 50 plus dollars. I'm curious on how do you think about pricing in like, where is the consumer demand at? How much of that do you think about when you're making these wines? And then also as a follow-on to that, I'd love to ask about it because obviously the ultramarine wines are very allocated and have a very big secondary market that you're not necessarily taking full advantage of. So how do you think about pricing? I think it's really important to separate the two, right? Because I think that the ultramarine question is a different one, which I, I'll happily talk about, but I think it would be disingenuous to say that that's a marker for domestic sparkling because it isn't. It really is. In that regard, I hope the listener understands, not on purpose, that is a unicorn by its very nature and was never my intention. I think when I think about sparkling wine and my sparkling wine and price points, I think that there are spaces that will always be value spaces, right? 
the Gloria Ferreras of the world or the Rotor Estates of the world. Those are great wines. They're great wines. And the pricing that they're doing for them is really, really impressive. I can't operate in that space. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't have the investment. I don't have the equipment, kind of as we were saying before. I don't have the marketing people. I don't have the sales people. I don't have a national salesperson. And I'm very happy to leave those spaces to those people. For me, I'm not convinced that I can make a $70 bottle of sparkling wine and make 10,000 cases and sell it all. That being said, I'm pretty sure I could do a $45 to $55 bottle and do 5,000 cases, right? Because I do think that if we focus on site and we focus on vineyards and we focus on being Californian, even in a retail sense, I'm not talking DTC here, I actually think that is a value to a consumer. And I think that the thing for me that has always worked and I hope will always work is being authentic. I'm not trying to, like I said, Rotor is a friggin' hero to me in a lot of ways. I'm not trying to steal their market share. What I am trying to do is take guys who are maybe in the like 35 to 55 range and be like, well, here's a reason why you should consider Cruise. That's what I think my sweet spot is. Like I said, do I know, do I have market data that will show that I can do 15,000 cases that way? No, I don't. But I think by looking at demand, including international demand as well, I think Five to 10,000 cases is probably not that big of a deal for me, honestly. Now, it might take me 20 years to get there per our conversations before about growth, but I think that that's sort of where I see it. And do you think that the upper echelon of that price point is because that's where champagnes start to come in at that like $60, $70 for like quality? Like you start to get like entry level grower champagnes? Yeah. I mean, I think what one of the things that will be interesting to see in terms of like the talking shop part of the program. I think one of the things that'll be interesting is sort of like, how does price inflation on champagne affect me? Because I do think that like, people are just getting the new, everybody's new releases. And we're talking about prices going up 20% in most cases. So the idea of you being able to get a grower champagne in the like $55 range, that's not going to happen. Certainly not one of quality. I shouldn't say it that way. I'm sorry. That's very harsh, but certainly not one that I think the three of us would like recognize as like, oh, this is Gone are the days of Jerome stuff being 65 bucks on release, right? And I think that like maybe gone are the days where Chateau Taille Cuvée Saint-Anne is like 45 bucks. So I don't think we're limited by champagne per se. I think what we're limited by is sort of, at least from the restaurant point of view, let's say, how many people are sort of willing to showcase sparkling. Or in my case, I mean, how many restaurateurs are going to choose me over Schramsberg, right? I mean, some, not all, you know, and they're doing 10 times my volume and have the sales team to support it. So I sort of have to look for organic spots there. If that makes sense. So your comment that you don't think you can make 10,000 cases out of $70, but like obviously with Ultramina, which is a very rare wine, there is very high secondary prices for those wines. That seems like a space where you could raise the bar and challenge that and ratchet that up over the years. Okay, so this is something that like I find really interesting. Is like I don't know what to make of the fact that Ultramarine goes for three times its release price. I don't know what to make of that. I don't think that means that I should charge three times as much, right? That means that there's some people that like Ultramarine enough or haven't tried it enough or whatever to buy, what, 30 bottles a year at 200 bucks? Do you know what I mean? That's not the same as me making it $200. The trading volume is light. Yeah, exactly right. So I think that for me, Ultramarine should be more expensive. It should be. The amount of time that goes into it, the rarity of it, fine. But I don't think that that's 
150 bucks. I think it's like 90 bucks or 100 bucks or something like that, where I can still feel like I'm offering value to people. Again, this is very dumb. And this, again, shows my acumen or lack thereof. But And some solos told me one time who I've talked to him like three times. So I'm not like buddies with the guy or whatever. But he was talking to me about Italians. And I was telling him like, I've never heard people talk about solos as much as Italians. And he goes, well, it's because when I first started, the Italians were the first guys that bought my wines. And so I gave them the same price for like 20 years. You know what I mean? I mean, remember, Solo starts in the mid 80s, right? So those guys were getting bottles of substance for like 40 euro, 50 euro, and a lot of it up until 15 years ago or whatever. I'm not saying that I think that that's the way to go for Ultramarine, but I do feel like for the guys that started buying my wine in 14 for 45 bucks, I feel weird about being like, okay, now it's 150. Do you know what I mean? Because why? I mean, it needs to be more because it costs me more to make, but the fact that there's more demand for it doesn't mean that changes anything for me. It in fact gives me a little bit of a buffer for growth in the future. I want to say one more thing about that because I think the other thing with Ultramarine is that I really think it's important to state that I don't think I could make that much more Ultramarine. That's the other thing. Everybody keeps talking about like, we'll make more but that's kind of like what I was saying in the beginning is that the sort of the way that that wine is made, I don't think there's like, maybe there's five vineyards that I haven't come across. There's not 400 tons of like ultramarine grade fruit out there. You know what I mean? And I think that like, unless somebody writes me a check for $50 million and I buy some property right next to Jasmine, like, I don't know what to tell you guys. Like, that's kind of what it is. And I think that like, wouldn't we much rather live in a world that we're like, okay, Michael makes 1,200 cases a year, and that's what he makes, right? So what channels are you most successful in? You talked about restaurants. You talked about direct. I presume Ultramarine is mostly direct, given its scarcity. And you talked about international export. How do you see selling your wines and it being different in the different channels? So Cruise has always been pretty balanced. We're sort of like a third, a third, a third, DTC, domestic, wholesale, and export. And that was really sort of, honestly, Asia was like a big supporter of Ultramarine early on, Japan, Korea, Singapore. And that's sort of been Hong Kong to a lesser extent, but still present. The Philippines, that has been a way for us to kind of grow crews and kind of have a nice balanced sales channels. On-premise versus off-premise, like it's something I think about, but I've never been super dogmatic about that because I think that, I mean, look at the last two years. Like if you were going to say like, again, not to talk shit and feel free to cut this out, but like I had buddies who were distributors and they were talking about Napa guys who one year into the pandemic were being like, okay, well now let's talk about getting our on-premise numbers back. And you're like, well, what are you talking about? Like, I mean, what restaurants are you selling a hundred dollar Napa cab to wholesale? in 2021, early 2021. So I think for me, maybe the only good part about being a smaller winery is that you can be light on your feet and sort of develop that as you go. But I think keeping as balanced as possible has been really important. And then for Ultramarine, yeah, I mean, it's 90 to 95% DTC, kind of depending on how we do it. And maybe that is one thing that I would say I probably screwed up is that I think that I probably should never have gone that high. I think the sweet spot I know people think that that's better because there's a little bit more money involved, but truthfully, um, 80% is probably a little bit better just to make sure that restaurants somewhere are getting it. And I think that's been an important part for us and, and something I'd like to refocus on, honestly. Hindsight's 2020. Ultramarine seemingly took off as a 
new cult wine right out of the gate with a huge waiting list. How do you think it got there so quickly? God, I don't know. I mean, I think that like we, so the short answer is that we had some really big supporters early on. I mean, I think that was it. Patrick Capiello, Levy Dalton, Pascaline Lepeltier, that sort of New York crew for sure. I mean, people don't believe me, but for the longest time, I had Wine Spectator's 81-point review of the 2010 like on my door to my office because I just thought like that was a motivator, if nothing else. So I think the Instagram nature of it, I think, which wasn't planned, the big supporters early on, that was certainly part of it. I think the fact that it was good was important too. I mean, the Chronicle Winemaker of the Year in 2016. I mean, I think that's the other thing that people talk about is that they think the Ultramarine was like good or that there's a wait list out of the gate. That's not actually true. It was really, well, it's true kind of. And the first release, you sort of could have bought whatever you wanted. We were doing it all by hand anyway. So the people that really, well, not until the third release, basically, the 2012 release, did we actually have a pretty significant wait list. And then from there, it just kind of grew. Wine Berserkers was part of that too. This is sort of a weird thing to say, but I was surprised by all that, honestly. And then I sort of realized what my job was after a bit. And by that, I mean that like my job is to actually make it as good as possible. That was always my job. But once you have that sort of cachet around it, then the wines better be great, right? And I think that like, I'm not saying that I didn't feel that pressure, but I didn't really feel that pressure until maybe the 2014 vintage where I was like, oh no, now I need to actually be a hundred percent sure that these are the best wines we could possibly make. I follow you on social media and you do a great job of talking about all your wines and have a very educational style of your talking like, Hey, I'm telling you what's going on through the vineyard. I'm telling you what's going on in the winemaking process, which is great. How much do you think the success is driven by you as the figurehead for the brand? Like, cause you really are the face of both cruise wine company and ultramarine. And I'm wondering how much of that is based on your style. Man, I don't know. It's a weird thing. I mean, I don't find myself particularly charismatic. I will say that my background in science and sort of that being a goal, I always kind of look at it like in science, you have these things called group meetings, right? And they happen once a week. I'm sure you have them in other industries too, but it's basically a time where it doesn't matter if you're a postdoc, a grad student, tech, or the PI, you're getting up in front of people once a quarter, probably, maybe a little bit more if you're working on a project and you're talking about what you're doing. And I think being able to explain what you're doing is a really important part of I don't know, any kind of craft, right? (laughs) I think that like, that's been an important part to me. And I don't know. I mean, I think I've gotten a lot of feedback from it. I wonder how much it actually sells wine. But I think per your conversation about like Rack and Riddle or whatever, at least people know that's not what I am. And again, no shade on Rack and Riddle. It's just more like, you know, who's making the wine and it's me and my team, you know? And I think that like, that's been a really important part for me because not everybody can spend time in champagne or spend time in a cellar or use my equipment, nor should they, right? <laughs> like, I mean, that would be horrible if like some oncologist is like, yeah, I'm going to spend three months working in champagne. So I'm happy to show that. And if that helps them learn a little bit and grant a little bit more insight to what is a relatively expensive luxury product, I think that's great. I mean, isn't that true of most luxury products? I mean, isn't it more interesting to know what the difference between paddock versus Rolexes or something like that. I don't know, or a V12 versus a V6. Like I find that interesting. For sure. Getting into the craft element of it and how it's made in that craft. Yeah, for sure. 
Did you have like a launch plan? I mean, you talked about Patrick Capiello and Pascaline and all that. Were you like focused on selling the friends and family or focused on certain press or events or anything when you launched Ultramarine? No, we didn't have any plan for launching Ultramarine. We just knew that we kind of had to because we needed money. That was part of it. People don't believe me, but the funny part was is that I actually thought we were going to have to bulk out the rosé, the 2010 rosé, because I just didn't think it was that good maybe a year beforehand. And then maybe three months up to it, I tasted it and was like, oh shit, this is like actually great. And it might be one of our favorite wines we ever made. So no, we didn't have a plan about that at all. For Cruise, the first vintage I made in so little that I knew that friends and family would be fine to start. And I would say that like Hardy Wallace was really helpful to me in kind of like putting this in front of these people to try to get distributors. But yeah, no, I didn't have a plan for any of that. Now that I know... I probably wouldn't have changed any of that, but I think that there are relationships that I value on the press and critic side that I actually now I'm like, even if they're not going to write about my stuff, I'll still be like, hey, are you free? Because I want to show you this. Because I think that part, much like as you're saying, the sort of explanation of the craft part, it's also people that I respect. There's not a lot of them, but maybe five, where it's like, hey, if you're going to be in the area, come by and taste this because I think you'll find this really interesting. And then they'll be like, okay, when are you releasing this? I'm I'm not. I just wanted to show it to you or something like that. So having those relationships ends up being super helpful too. One of the things that Peter and I talk about is like the higher up you go in terms of like wine pricing, a lot of times the websites are the information that's communicated is even less and less. Obviously on social, you're very active, but your websites are pretty sparse. I'm just curious, is this by design, like as an old school, less is more kind of style that cult wineries take or just has been an afterthought? I mean, that's such a good question. I feel like it's not on purpose per se. The Ultramarine site, we don't need to get into this, but that's going to get upgraded at some point. It still might very well just be a splash page because I don't really, I don't think it's a value add for having me to have more content about Ultramarine on there. But maybe I'm wrong about that. Honestly, gentlemen, I think part of it is like sort of how do I find out about wine, right? And do I find out about wine from websites from the producer? I mean, not really. How many fucking flybys of a drone over like some vineyard do you need to see (laughs) you know i mean like i think it's pretty but like i don't know if i see another like forested vineyard drone shot i don't know it's like come on so i'm a little embarrassed of the website i wish that we had more information about my team i know that's sort of a dumb thing to say but that's how i feel about it but about the actual content or anything it wasn't on purpose it was more just like that's not what i'm good at i think (laughs) As a counterpoint, your offer emails have a lot of in-depth content that I always have to go back. I was like, oh, when was that email that he sent this out for this release? Because I want to read back up on it now that I'm opening it. You know, it's so funny that you say that because the amount of time I spend on those is like, it's too long, man. It's too long. And I think that like, I'm a little too young and then a little too old to like have gotten the like handwritten, the Sinequinon like letters and stuff like, you know what I mean? And I've never been on on Manfred's list anyway, but that idea of it, like that's sort of the inspiration there. And my thing is always like, I just want to make sure it's like, if I printed it out, that it's like a page. That's the only thing. Like, I just want to make sure it's that length. And then to be honest, part of it's an exploration for me too, especially when it comes to ultramarine letters. Like I probably haven't tasted those wines outside of the dosage trial or whatever. I probably haven't tasted those wines in like three years. They kind of go into a black box for a while. So it is bringing up a lot of information for me about that vintage and sort of where it fits in relative to space to everything else we've done from there too. So I'm glad that you say that. That means a lot to me that they're interesting to you. 
I value them, and I have to go look them up every time I open a bottle. So, so where does ultramarine and cruise wine go from here? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting. I think with ultramarine, I'm not against the growth of it, but I think it has to be per our conversation, it has to be the right growth. And I think that maybe there is some synergy between the two of them from that point of view. I don't want to be like strict and saying like, well, if it doesn't make it into ultramarine, then it goes into cruise because that's not how it works at all. But what I would say is that I don't like have a ultramarine hat and a cruise hat that it's always the same hat. So as I have a little bit more scratch, let's say in the cruise bank account to like look at different vineyards, maybe that gives me a little bit of information about ultramarine. So where I would like to see ultramarine I'd like to see it continuing. I'd like to see it with maybe two more vineyards, maybe something like that. But yeah, in the like 1200 to 1500 case range, something like that seems like the right number for me. Again, just kind of a guesstimate. For Cruise, I mean, I think Cruise is a proof of concept that we can make sparkling wine in California that's not an imitation of champagne, that does speak to California vineyards and sites and that it's enjoyable and tasty and <laughs> people like it. So I think that that is a, I like doing things that are difficult, right? I'll say that. And I think that like both of those tasks might be the next 20, 30 years of my life. Thank you for so much information. It's really insightful to hear about your journey. We want to end the episode on a personal note. What was the most memorable bottle of wine that you've had in the last year? And who did you drink it with? I was having this conversation beforehand. So uh, my girlfriend is uh, Jasmine Hirsch, and unfortunately she has COVID right now. So she was hanging around and giving me information behind a, and we were talking about it. And I think, you know, I was just in New York. I went over to Andre Mack's place, the Ann Sons, and he's such a generous guy. And he opened up a bottle of the Pierre Peters Heritage. And that one is sick. That one is super, super sick. And I think that like, it's an experimental wine in a lot of ways. I don't think that if you were blinded on it, that you would necessarily appreciate it. I think that's an important part to say about blinding sometimes is that you don't, you lose the context. And if for wine that, that is above its weight class in a lot of ways, like you don't, blinding is great for like grocery wines, but not necessarily great for multi hundreds of dollar bottles of wine sometimes. So anyway, whatever. I was really, really, really appreciative of him opening it and then getting to taste it and sort of Honestly, seeing Rodolf do something that's really experimental, but that sort of is meaningful to him and his family's work, it was really good too. I mean, that's the other thing. It like it really, really, really was a good bottle of wine. That's the one that came to mind. Really interesting bottle. That seems like you guys have some of the similar things where he likes it's a one-off, he's never gonna do it again. It tells the story of his family. Yeah, super interesting bottle. I haven't had a pleasure of tasting it yet, but uh I've heard from a number of people who have that it is fabulous. But Again, we want to thank you for joining this episode and sharing all of your information about Cruise Wine Company and Ultramarine. It was super insightful. Awesome. Thanks, guys. The pleasure really was mine. And don't forget, you can become a patron of X Chateau by visiting patreon.com slash X Chateau if you'd like to support us to continue delivering content that the wine industry needs. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.